Hello friend, and welcome to A Nightmare Before Halloween. Take a seat here, next to the campfire. Don't you know the woods are a terribly dangerous place to be alone? I've invited a few friends here to join us tonight. They are almost exclusively crime podcasters, who all have a terrifying tale to share. You're going to hear 31 spooky stories, and before we conclude with a soothing, deadly bedtime story, we'll be visited by someone the devil himself would likely think twice before crossing. All podcasts joining tonight you'll find listed in the episode show notes in order of appearance, along with a link on where to find them. If you're in the mood for true crime or spooky tales, or maybe to learn about some other podcasts you could start listening to, well, then you're in the right place. Ah, the campfire feels nice and warm now, doesn't it? I'm Shane Waters, by the way, the host of Foul Play Crime Series. And tonight, stay close. You never know who or what could be lurking in these dark woods. I'll start with the first spooky crime story of the night. Coming up to the fire next are my two favorite Mikes, Mike Ferguson and Mike Morford from Criminology. Tonight they will share the story of the 1966 murder of college student Sherry Jo Bates. October 30th, the night before Halloween, has long been referred to as Devil's Night. On that night, every year across the country, there are instances of vandalism or pranks. Usually, it's a result of teenagers misbehaving, and in most cases, trees filled with toilet paper may be the extent of the mischief. Sometimes, however, the crimes committed on October 30th go far beyond harmless fun. Such was the case for 18-year-old Sherry Jo Bates, whose brutal murder shocked her hometown of Riverside, California, and it remains unsolved to this day. The city of Riverside is an hour west of Los Angeles. In 1966, many of Riverside's residents were transplants who came to work at Riverside area military bases. Such was the case for the Bates family, who moved from Omaha, Nebraska in 1957. Joseph Bates, the patriarch of the family, found work as a machinist at the Corona Naval Ordnance Lab. His wife, Irene, was a homemaker, and rounding out the Bates family was son Michael and daughter Sherry Jo. During the 1960s, Irene Bates began to struggle with her mental health and had to be committed to a mental hospital. As a result, Joseph and Irene's marriage suffered, and they eventually divorced in 1965. Michael graduated from Ramona High School and joined the Navy. Sherry Jo and her father, Joseph, found themselves alone in their suddenly quiet home located at 4195 Via San Jose in Riverside. Sherry Jo was a popular and outgoing student with lots of friends at Ramona High School. She was a cheerleader who dated one of the school's star football players. The young couple even made plans to marry. Following graduation in 1966, Sherry Jo immediately enrolled at Riverside City College less than four miles away from her home. With her fiancé away at college in Northern California, Sherry Jo applied herself to her studies, and she took a part-time job at a local bank. She had hopes of becoming a flight attendant. On Sunday, October 30th, while Joseph Bates was out, Sherry Jo left her home, headed for the Riverside City College Library to check out some books and study. She scrawled her dad a quick note that read, Dad went to the RCC library and left it for him in case he arrived home and wondered where she was. Along the way, 
one of her friends passed her on the road. Sherry Jo was hard to miss in her lime green VW Buck. It was about 6.10 p.m. when the friend saw Sherry Jo. A few minutes later, at about 6.15 p.m., she pulled into the RCC Library parking lot. According to one witness who later came forward, she was followed closely by a late model bronze Oldsmobile. Sherry Jo parked and went into the library. Although some people that knew her would later say that they didn't recall seeing her in the library, at least one witness that knew her confirmed she was in the library and he detailed how she was writing in a blue spiral notebook. Exactly what happened after Sherry Jo walked into the library remains unclear to this day. Police believe that Sherry Jo left the library at 9 p.m. when it closed. Back at home, Sherry's dad arrived home and found Sherry's note. He went to bed expecting Sherry Jo would be home later that evening, but she never made it home. At 6.30 the next morning on Halloween, an RCC groundskeeper traveling along Terracina Drive next to the library found Sherry's lifeless body face down in a gravel alleyway and raced to call for help. Police arrived and found a grisly crime scene. Sherry Jo had been brutally stabbed and slashed with a knife. One slash wound to her throat was so severe that she was almost decapitated. Some possibly important clues were found at the scene. A man's paint-splattered Timex wristwatch, size 7, was discovered. Police believe that Sherry Jo had yanked it from her killer's wrist during the attack. They also found a single blood-clotted hair in her hand, possibly from the killer. The investigation into Sherry Joe's murder was extensive, and police started with an examination of her car. Police found the books she had checked out on the front seat, indicating that she had made it back to her car after leaving the library. When they opened the hood, they discovered that someone had tampered with the ignition and coil wire, making it impossible for the VW bug to start. When Sherry Joe went to start her car up, it wouldn't start. It's believed that at that moment, the person who tampered with the VW approached her, offering her assistance. She apparently accepted the offer of help, not wanting to be stranded after dark at the library. Rather than hold back this detail about the disabling of Sherry Joe's car, police chose to share it with the press. Police arranged to do a recreation of the night of the murder and painstakingly rounded up every single person known to have been in the library the night Sherry Joe was killed. They had them wear the same clothes, park the same cars they drove in the same spots they had been parked in, and sit in the same seats in the library. Police accounted for everyone who was at the library the night of the murder, with the exception of two people. Missing from their recreation were a heavy-set young man with a beard who was about five foot eleven, and a young woman. It's not clear if the young woman missing from the recreation was Sherry Joe, but police hoped to ID the bearded man. They never did. Also missing from the reenactment was a Studebaker with oxidized paint that was seen parked on Riverside Avenue. It too, as well as its driver, were never identified. Police talked with one witness who lived close to the library. The witness told them that sometime around 10.30 p.m. on the night of the murder, they heard a terrible scream in the alleyway where Sherry Joe's body was found. A few moments later, they heard what sounded like an old car start up and drive off. Another witness came forward with an interesting account. They said that shortly before the library closed, they had walked down the same alleyway. In the darkness between two abandoned homes, they saw a man smoking a cigarette. The embers were clear, but unfortunately, the light from the cigarette didn't illuminate the man's face clearly enough for them to give a description. Cigarette butts were found at that exact spot and collected into evidence. Despite all of the Riverside Police Department's best efforts, the investigation into Sherry Joe's murder seemed to grind to a halt. They were at a loss trying to ID anyone. 
that would want the pretty and popular 18-year-old dead. Then, a month after Sherry Jo was murdered, two nearly identical typed letters were anonymously mailed to the Riverside Press Enterprise newspaper and to the Riverside Police Department. In the letter, which has been dubbed the confession letter, the sender claimed responsibility for Sherry Jo's murder and provided chilling details. The letter read as follows. She was young and beautiful, but now she is battered and dead. She is not the first and she will not be the last. I lay awake nights thinking about my next victim. Maybe she will be the beautiful blonde that babysits near the little store and walks down the dark alley each evening about seven. Or maybe she'll be the shapely blue-eyed brunette that said no when I asked for a date in high school. But maybe it will not be either. But I shall cut off her female parts and deposit them for the whole city to see. So don't make it easy for me. Keep your sisters, daughters, and wives off the streets and alleys. Miss Bates was stupid. She went to the slaughter like a lamb. She did not put up a struggle, but I did. It was a ball. I first pulled the middle wire from the distributor. Then I waited for her in the library and followed her out after about two minutes. The battery must have been about dead by then. I then offered to help. She was then very willing to talk with me. I told her that my car was down the street and that I would give her a lift home. When we were away from the library walking, I said it was about time. She asked me about time for what? I said it was about time for her to die. I grabbed her around the neck with my hand over her mouth and my other hand with a small knife at her throat. She went very willingly. Her breast felt very warm and firm under my hands, but only one thing was on my mind, making her pay for the brush-offs that she had given me during the years prior. She died hard. She squirmed and shook as I choked her, and her lips twitched. She let out a scream once, and I kicked her head to shut her up. I plunged the knife into her, and it broke. I then finished the job by cutting her throat. I am not sick. I am insane, but that will not stop the game. This letter should be published for all to read it. It just might save that girl in the alley, but that is up to you. It will be on your conscience, not mine. Yes, I did make that call to you also. It was just a warning. Beware. I'm stalking your girls now. The confession letter was disturbing to say the least. Police felt confident that the author had known only details that the killer would have known. But actually, much of those details included were reported in local newspapers in the days following Sherry Joe's murder. As troubling and tantalizing as the letter was to police, it wasn't the only letter in Sherry Joe's case. On April 30th, 1967, Six months after the murder, the Riverside Police, the Riverside Press Enterprise, and even Sherry Joe's father, Joseph Bates, all received hand-scrawled letters. The letters simply read, Bates had to die, there will be more. Not long after Sherry Joe was killed, a janitor at Riverside City College found a morbid poem etched in pen on the underside of a desk in the RCC library. The poem was so disturbing to him that he thought it may be related to Sherry Joe's murder, and he reported it to police. The poem read as follows. Sick of living, unwilling to die, cut clean, if read, clean, blood spurting, dripping, spilling, all over her new dress. Oh well, it was read anyway, life draining into an uncertain death. She won't die this time, someone will find her. Just wait till next time. R.H. While the desktop poem was strange, there was nothing connecting it solidly to the murder of Sherry Jo Bates. She certainly wasn't wearing a red dress when she died, but it was just one more strange clue tied to Sherry Jo Bates, making the investigation even tougher for investigators. That desktop poem and other clues from Sherry Jo's murder, including the letters, would eventually be tied to California's infamous serial killer, the Zodiac. While no physical evidence seems to connect Sherry Jo Bates to the Zodiac, the two cases have been hopelessly entangled together for over 50 years. DNA from the cigarette butts found near the crime scene and the clotted hair found in Sherry Joe's hand 
do not match a favorite suspect of Riverside PD who has been on their radar since early on in the investigation. Both Sherry Joe's case and the Zodiac case remain unsolved. It's impossible for us to get into every detail of Sherry Joe's murder in this short segment, let alone delve into the Zodiac portion of the mystery. But if you want a complete deep dive into Sherry Joe's case, as well as the Zodiac case, be sure to go back and listen to our complete first season of Criminology, where we explore both cases in great detail. Thanks, Mike and Mike. Do you know what serial killer scares you the most? Is it the Zodiac? Well, I asked our next storyteller, one of the hosts of Generation Y and the Peripheral podcast, Justin Evans, that very question. A question I get a lot is what serial killer scares you the most? Now, they're all horrible. They all leave a trail of shattered lives and victims in their wake. But when it comes to which one actually scares me, I had to think about that. I mean, take the cunning and conniving Ted Bundy, who could coax many young women into his car, or the horrendous Jeffrey Dahmer, who preyed on vulnerable young gay men. Ted Bundy had a type, which was a younger female in their teens to early 20s, and dark shoulder-length hair. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer mainly targeted men of color, and as scary as both of them are, I, as a middle-aged straight white guy, would not be targeted by either of them, and that really applies to most serial killers. Women, at-risk youth, minorities, the LGBT community, are far more affected by crimes of violence, especially at the hands of a serial killer, than I ever would be. So, what's my answer? Which serial killer could I even fall prey to? I'm not the target demographic for most of these predators. In reality, there are only a few, and even those wouldn't target me directly, but get rid of me, as it were, if I were in their way of their actual intended target. Which brings me to Richard Ramirez. When I was a child, I remember seeing a man's face on the TV, and I asked my mom, who is that? What's going on? And she said, they caught a very scary man. Now, as I got older and learned more about serial killers, Richard always stood out to me because of that moment as a child where I actually saw his face on my own TV. Once I started reading about him and how he chose his victims, it became very clear to me that he wasn't like the others. Some serial killers will stalk their victims for days, watching and choosing carefully the most vulnerable. Others will stage a scene where their intended victims will be misled into their car or home. And then there are those who target sex workers or at-risk individuals. Richard, on the other hand, would go out at night, walk down the street, follow you into your house as you got home from work or return from the store. He targeted women, but if there was a man in the house, he would shoot them and kill them first because Richard perceived them as the bigger threat and something that was in the way of his end goal. And his goal was typically raping and murdering the woman. And I can only imagine opening up my garage door and 
pulling into my garage. And as the garage door is closing, somebody's slipping underneath and into my home. Sometimes Richard would break into a house or an apartment, not even knowing who was inside, but with the intention of killing anyone he came across. He would search for unlocked doors or windows to gain silent access to the home. Once inside, he would get low to the ground in a prone position and wait for his eyes to adjust to the darkness. Richard hunted at night, which is how he got the moniker, the Night Stalker. Among his many victims, those who survived were left maimed or tormented. Their ages ranged from 9 to 83 years old. He would strangle, shoot, stab, and bludgeon his victims. His M.O. would change based on whatever opportunity was presented to him which made him elusive to capture, but his brutality always stayed the same. Richard Ramirez was walking chaos. Even knowing that his reign of terror ended in 1985 and that he would end up dying behind bars in 2013, he's one of the few that got me, struck that spine-chilling nerve that I just couldn't shake. After reading several books and watching interviews, one night I just, I couldn't rest. I could not get to sleep. Every bump, creak, or sound would startle me. And I would imagine someone or something trying to come into my home. Now every house has its own personality, its sounds, but this night I had to go out and sit on my sofa with gun in hand while memorizing every noise. I had to hear it, rationalize it, and deem it as non-threatening. This ranged from the compressor in my refrigerator going off to a random squirrel dropping a nut on my roof. Everything had to be categorized and labeled before I felt safe enough to go lay back down in my warm, safe bed. Because fear is never rational. Fear makes us act and behave in ways way outside of our norm. We'll turn our backs on family. We'll form angry mobs to hunt down others and even commit genocide. Out of fear and ignorance. Luckily, my fear only drove me to sitting in the dark by myself, listening to the noises in my own home, like a scared child who finally was brave enough to come out from under the blankets. That was the most irrational I've ever behaved out of fear. We all have behaved irrationally, I think, out of fear, which is why sometimes it's nice to take a little light-hearted look at true crime. This is Trevin and Amanda from Live Laugh Larceny, the show that takes a deep dive into shallow crime. We've all heard legends and spooky lore in a group setting. There are stories that everyone at least somewhat knows and is willing to loosely retell, hoping to get some kind of frightened response. Maybe it's a sleepover between a bunch of preteen girls or a Boy Scout troop gathered around a campfire. No matter the setting, fear is a powerful emotion when shared. There's always that one person who shares the Lover's Lane story about the teens who drive to Lover's Lane to make out and hear about an escaped convict in the area. All teens beware, there's a murder on the 
The boy tries to calm the girl down, but she insists on being taken home. Once the girl gets out of the car, she finds a bloody hook stuck to the side of the car door. Gasps and sounds of unease surround the storyteller as they sit back and admire that they are the Stephen King of their generation. I am so spooky. The thing about these creepy stories is that they have been retold and passed down from generations. Like a game of telephone, but with deadlier consequences. The story was probably about two young lovers who later figured out that the boy's dad left his tackle box in the back seat with his fishing hooks exposed. This story later got retold more and more, over time turning into something much more dreadful. But really, what's scarier than dating the son of a fisherman? Not a fisherman! So gather around your podcast listening device, because I'm about to tell you a whole new story that I expect will be repeated in large gatherings for millennia. On the eve of spooky season, four young girls gathered for a late night game of scary stories. Margaret pretty much plagiarized the plot of Hocus Pocus, while Carly told the true story of how her mom took her to Starbucks and they were out of non-fat vanilla oat milk. Obviously, she knew her crowd, because the twist was almost too much for everyone to bear. Come on, Susie, Margaret said. Why don't you tell us a scary story? Susie cowered in the corner. She was never one for spooky stories. As a child, she was always very sensitive to such tales. No thank you, Susie said. I'd rather skip my turn. Just as the crowd began to berate their friend for not playing along, Come on, loser! That's when Josephine jumped in and interrupted them. If Susie won't tell a story, then I'll jump ahead and see just how much I can scare her. Josephine was the more edgy one of the group. She was allowed to wear her shoes in the house, and her parents didn't put parental controls on their HBO Max subscription. There's no telling what kinds of things Josephine has seen with her young eyes. Previously on The Sopranos. This party was also at Josephine's house, so she had no issue with turning up the scary factor, as she was already safely at home. I'm going to tell you the story of Miss Moo Moo, the demon cow of Middletown, Ohio, Josephine said. Kicked out of hell itself for being too evil, Miss Moo Moo comes out every October to graze on the souls of young girls. The smiles of glee quickly turned to looks of unease. Josephine had a very descriptive way of speaking, and they couldn't believe that she said the word hell. The bad girl. Josephine went into more detail about how the hellish heifer would stalk the children and eat them before turning them all into cow pies. La 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 la! Susie shouted while plugging her ears. Stop it, you're scaring her! Margaret exclaimed. What? I'm just foreshadowing. It's a commonly used plot device in horror movies, Josephine said in her defense. Looking at the clock, Margaret realized that it was time for her to get home. Susie, Carly, and Margaret gathered up their things as they headed for the door. Have a safe walk, Susie. Don't let Miss Moo Moo get you, Josephine shouted just before closing her door. At the end of Josephine's driveway, Margaret went left as Susie and Carly headed right. The two had made this walk many nights before, but there was something strange about this particular evening. Maybe it was the scary stories that they just swapped or how they were irresponsibly drinking iced coffees at 10 p.m. As they continued to walk, they couldn't help but feel like they were being watched. From the opposite side of the street, they heard a rustling of leaves. What was that? Susie whispered over to Carly. In that moment, the fear had crept into Carly too. The sounds of the night crickets and street lamps slowly began to silence, as the only thing the two could hear were their hearts beating. Carly grabbed Susie's hand as they both stood frozen in the middle of the street. 
Neither one could conjure the strength to check their surroundings. Just as they were about to make a run for it, they heard another noise from behind them. It sounded like that of a giant beast huffing just before an attack. Susie slowly turned her head to see a large figure with two big horns. It's Miss Moo Moo, Susie yelled as both girls screamed and ran for it. But as the girls were gaining speed, they couldn't help but notice that the demon bull was chasing after them. No matter what direction they would take, the loud stomps of the creature would follow close behind while still making its demonic snorts. Fatigued and dehydrated from the iced coffees, the girls knew they were only a block away from a busy intersection where they could get help. It took everything they had to keep running, as they could feel the hot breath of the beast blowing on their backs. As the headlights of the cars came into focus, the girls ran onto the crosswalk and flagged down the cars at the red light. Help us! You've got to help us! The two screamed, before continuing to run across the street. As the girls reached the next sidewalk, they began to hear car horns honking and people screaming. What's the matter with you? I'm a thirsty cow! The beast cried out. Can anyone pour me a caramulu? The honking continued as the cow person refused to get out of the street. Sue and Carly were finally coming back to reality. They were no longer viewing the world in the same scared way they had been. Taking a closer look, that's when they realized that this was no beast. Standing in front of the angry drivers was a drunk woman just wearing a cow costume. The two girls watched as police lights quickly filled the intersection. As the police officer stepped out of their car, a strange man came running from one of the nearby houses. Thank God you're here, said the man. That is the same cow that I spotted peeing on my front porch earlier. In September of 2008, Middletown, Ohio woman Michelle Allen was arrested for getting in the way of traffic and chasing children while wearing a cow suit. There were also accusations from a neighbor stating that she had urinated on his porch. At the time of her arrest, she was smelling strongly of alcohol while also threatening the arresting officers. She was charged with one count of disorderly conduct. According to police, this was the 50th time Allen had been arrested. On the following Tuesday, Michelle Allen showed up to court wearing the very same cow suit and challenged other people in court to, quote, suck her udders. Investigators believe that this may have been a promotional stunt for a local haunted trail, as an employee of the trail did come to repossess the cow suit. Whether this was a stunt or not, the charge did land Allen in jail for 30 days, and I don't think we can blame a promotional stunt for the other 49 arrests. So let the story of Miss Moo Moo be the start of a new spooky legend to tell kids around the campfire. Because it's Halloween season, and Miss Moo Moo may just be wandering the streets of Middletown, Ohio right now, grazing on the souls of those who stay up too late. <laughs> Miss Moo Moo strikes! Yes, if anybody is a listener of our show, Miss Moo Moo did come up a couple weeks ago in a different way, but... We were just so tickled by the name that I had to make a call back to it. Oh, I am obsessed. What a story. Oh, my God. I really want to dress as a cow for Halloween now and just tell someone, suck my ass. Mm, I've got a sheep costume you can wear, but I don't have a cow one. <laughs> so if anybody's never listened to us before, we do movie versions, basically, of stories. So sometimes we will kind of exaggerate things a little bit more to add the drama but at the end, I always try to do some sort of a recap that explains the truth. 
Yeah. Nobody called her Miss Moo Moo. I don't know anything about these girls, but I do know that a drunk woman dressed as a cow did chase women, pee on a porch, and make a fool of herself in traffic. Yep, yep. We always tell true stories, but we always say, eh, the details may vary here and there. Yeah. We like to have a little bit of fun with our stories. So if you ever need a lighthearted break, we would love for you to jump over to Live Laugh Larceny anytime. I'm going to look for a cow costume now on Amazon. I'm sure to come into you sometime, right? Okay, for my next friend, she's going to ask you to close your eyes. Just go with it. I'll keep an eye out for anything shady. Her name is Sammy from The Hidden Staircase. Okay, here she comes. Close your eyes and imagine a room. Its walls are covered in antique wallpaper, now torn and faded. If you look closely, you can see the outline of a secret door. A door that will open if you are willing to enter. There is a staircase there that descends into the darkness. And at its base, a room filled with terrible wonders. It is a library of mystery a catalog of terrors. The pages of his books are stained with ink, capturing moments of time stained with blood. Its shelves are weighted with stories that have yet to be told, with the answers to questions that have yet to be asked. Those stories are waiting for you at the bottom of the hidden staircase. I'm Sammy, the host of the Hidden Staircase podcast, true crime, paranormal, and mysterious cases from the archives. Every story you hear dates before the 1950s. But for this Halloween special, I'm going to tell you about a game, a game that can only be played at midnight. This game should not be taken lightly. If anything, this game should not be played at all. But... If you're going to play the Midnight Game, you might as well know the rules. The Midnight Game is an old pagan ritual used mainly as punishment for those who have broken the laws of the pagan religion in question. While it was mainly used as a scare tactic to not disobey the gods, there is still a very existent chance of death to those who play the Midnight Game. There's an even higher chance of permanent mental scarring. It is highly recommended that you do not play the midnight game. However, for those few thrill-seekers searching for a rush, or for those delving into obscure occult rituals, these are simple instructions on how to play. Do so at your own risk. Prerequisites. It must be exactly 12 a.m. when you begin performing the ritual. Otherwise, it will not work. Materials. You will need a candle, a piece of paper, a writing implement, matches or a lighter, salt, a wooden door, and at least one drop of your own blood. If you are playing with multiple people, they will need their own of the aforementioned materials 
and they will have to perform the steps below accordingly. Step 1. Write your full name, first, middle, and last, on the piece of paper. Put at least one drop of blood on the paper. Allow it to soak into the paper. Step 2. Turn off all the lights in the place you are doing this. Go to your wooden door and place the paper with your name on it in front of the door. Now, take out the candle and light it. Place it on top of the paper. Step 3. Knock on the door 22 times. The hour must be 12 a.m. upon the final knock. Then, open the door, blow out the candle, and close the door. You have just allowed the midnight man to enter your house. Step 4. Immediately relight your candle. This is where the game begins. You must now lurk around your now completely dark house with the lit candle in your hand. Your goal is to avoid the midnight man at all costs until 3.33 a.m. Should your candle ever go out, that means the midnight man is near you. You must relight your candle in the next 10 seconds. If you are not successful in doing this, you must then immediately surround yourself with a circle of salt. If you are unsuccessful in both of your actions, the Midnight Man will create a hallucination of your greatest fear and rip out your organs one by one. You will feel it, but you will be unable to react. If you are successful in creating a circle of salt, you must remain in there until 3.33 a.m. If you are successful in relighting your candle, you may proceed with the game. You must continue to 3.33 a.m., without being attacked by the Midnight Man or being trapped inside the Circle of Salt to win the Midnight Game. The Midnight Man will leave your house at 3.33 a.m. and you'll be safe to proceed with your morning. Addition, indications that you are near the Midnight Man will include sudden drops in temperature, seeing a pure black humanoid figure through the darkness, and hearing very soft whispering coming from an indiscernible source. If you experience any of these, it is advised that you leave the area to avoid the Midnight Man. Do not turn any of the lights on during the Midnight Game. Do not use a flashlight during the Midnight Game. Do not attempt to use another person's blood on your name. Do not use a lighter as a substitute for a candle. It will not work. And definitely do not Attempt to provoke the Midnight Man in any way. Even when the game is over, he will always be watching you. Good luck. You are going to need it. can open your eyes now. It's spooky season, and my next friend Lainey loves being scared, so she is sharing listener-submitted stories from her two podcasts, True Crime Cases with Lainey, and It's Haunted. What now? A trigger warning before we get into the story, we do discuss mental health crises and suicidal thoughts. 
This will probably be a very long story, but I'll never forget it as long as I live. I also didn't believe in anything paranormal or outside the realm of science until this happened. I still just don't know what to make of it, to be honest, and I would love to hear what people think might have been going on. So, my freshman year of college, I moved into a dorm in a very old historic building in Florida. It was 2020 and COVID was still really bad, so each student had their own room. I quickly made friends with the girl who lived directly next door, Sophie, and a girl on the third floor, Evie. On the first or second night, we got to talking about ghosts and spiritual stuff, as we all realized we were very into the occult and whatnot. The third floor girl, Evie, suggested that we make and play a Ouija board. I had tried one before at sleepovers and it had never worked, but I was interested and it was a super old building that was supposedly haunted, so we gave it a shot. We made the board out of cardboard and that was the first of many nights using this thing. It worked every single time without fail, no matter what combination of people had their hands on the planchette. We eventually got a store-bought board and no change occurred. We used this board probably every day. It became like an obsession. It's all we talked about. I'm still not sure if it was because the thought of speaking to something otherworldly was exciting or if something else was going on. I could tell so many little stories, but I'll try to sum up the important stuff. We knew it was legit the first night we played. We were quickly introduced to the entity on the other side. It went by shove most of the time, but occasionally by solo or SO. I don't think we spoke to anyone but them the entire time. We tested it by asking for the name of another friend we recently made, Stepmom. It guessed correctly immediately without her having her hands on the board. We had just met her. There is no way we could have known this. On the second or third night, we asked Shove to give us a sign that they were really there. We heard a noise at the closed door to my room and looked over to see a shadow outside of it, as if someone was standing right outside the door. We opened it and, of course, no one was there. We closed it and the shadow was gone. Little things happened over the course of the semester. Things would be moved that I couldn't explain. The sink in the bathroom down the hall would turn off and on by itself when nobody was around. Stuff like that. After a few weeks of this, things really started to get weird. One night, I was playing the board with Evie's boyfriend and Sophie. Evie was laying with her head in her boyfriend's lap, not touching the board. Suddenly, she started panicking and hyperventilating. We thought she must be having a random panic attack or something, but she claimed she was unable to control where her eyes were looking. We went to take her out of the building because she was so freaked out, and in the lobby, she swore she saw someone out of the corner of her eye saw that no one was actually there and bolted out the front doors, terrified. Shove really seemed to turn on Evie for whatever reason. On another night, not long after that one, the three of us original girls were playing the board and Evie told us her back was really hurting. She asked us to look and see if she had a really bad sunburn on her lower back. Strange, but that's what she said it felt like. There were a ton of fresh scratches on her lower back when we looked. This was scary because she was not leaning on anything and had both hands on the board. I can attach a picture of the scratches if anyone is interested. Around the time of these events, Evie started to act really strange. 
For the first months I knew her, she was always very calm and down to earth, but she began acting extremely short-tempered and possessive or jealous. Now this is where I'm not sure what to think. Was it a mental health crisis or were our nightly activities causing side effects? I'm not sure I'll ever know, but I remember Evie screaming at me and stomping up the stairs to her room and being so shocked. It was so out of character. During a fight with her boyfriend, she ripped her hair out and slammed her head on the floor. And then after a week or so, she was involuntarily institutionalized after telling her therapist that she was going to take her life. This was obviously very upsetting for Sophie and me. And then Sophie had begun having suicidal thoughts. I'm not sure if this started before or after Evie left. And then one morning I woke up and checked my phone and Sophie had gone to the hospital earlier that morning because she woke up and couldn't breathe. And it ended up being some tonsil issue, I believe, but the timing was really weird. Both Sophie and Evie ended up dropping out of college for mental health reasons. I spent the rest of the semester and the one after in that room and never had any serious issues. I had a roommate the second semester of that year and she didn't have any issues either. I played the board every once in a while to show curious friends the ghosts that lived in my room. Shove was always there but did nothing more than respond on the board. I'm still very much in touch with Sophie and Evie. Evie completely returned to her old self not long after dropping out. Whether this was due to the removal of stressful college work or being away from that building for good, I'll never know. Was she possessed? Who was Shove? Was Shove even real or did we just make him up because we desperately wanted to believe something else was out there? I'll probably never get any answers, but I guess at least I have a good story to tell at parties. Now, Altruistic Study 166 brings us our final story about a possessive entity. I was dating a guy not long ago. We did chat about our weird ghost experiences, and he said a lot of weird stuff happens around him. It didn't really bother me as most things aren't sinister. At his house, you would hear walking down the corridors, knocking strange smells that seemed to just appear and stick around. His son used to turn to us and ask us who else was in the house or ask, who's that? It was fairly innocent stuff until about a month ago. I woke up in the night and went for a cigarette. I went to the toilet and then got back into bed. I heard a creak by the door and wondered if it was his child. It wasn't. This huge, slim shadow stood by the door, and I mean huge. I've seen stuff before and didn't get a scared feeling, but this literally filled me with dread and horror. I was trying to shake the guy I was dating awake, but he wasn't waking up. And I heard a weird laughter and just the words, Mine. Then the shadow disappeared. I didn't sleep and left when the sun came up. We talked about it later in the day and the guy is fully aware of it. It's moved with him everywhere he goes and his son has seen it too and sleepwalks since he first saw it. The son once slept walked over to me and just leaned in my face, whispering. Since I saw it that night... 
The guy's mental health has deteriorated so poorly. He just lays in bed, doesn't eat, lashes out, and I had to walk away. Does anyone else have a similar experience or something like that? Something definitely has a hold on this poor guy and may even be moving on to his son. I hope that that's not the case and I hope that they both get help and are safe and okay. I hope you don't feel bad that you had to get yourself out of that situation instead of remaining with him. If he's aware of what is going on, then he may have invited this entity into his life and you're not responsible for that. Are you getting a bit spooked now? Well... Not every terrifying monster is alive. You'll find out what I mean from Justin Drown, who is the host of Obscura, a true crime podcast and disaster. Get ready and hold on tight. in Ohio, I remember being terrified of tornadoes. When there was a warning on the television, I remember being sure that this would be the end. A tornado would come and wipe out the house. I'd be sucked into the air, never to be seen again. Nice thoughts for a kid to have, I know. To be fair to little kid me, there was something about the way local news stations sensationalized a storm. Each tornado warning made to seem like it could be the end times. A serious-faced man on the television, telling me in a stern voice to heed his warning. If you are in a mandatory evacuation area, you need to get to high ground now. This is the time. There won't be another request because it will be too late. That time probably is now. If you're in the Fort Myers area, Lee County, Collier County, that looks like that will be the landfall area, Kelly. This is a major hurricane. Top winds are now above 125 miles per hour sustained. That's right. We'll have another update with our hurricane expert coming up shortly. But first of all, let's give you the very latest that we have from the National Hurricane Center and our Hurricane Hunter flight information showing that our pressure has now dropped to 954 millibars or 28.17 inches of mercury. The flight level, by the way, at 9140 feet. And the eye information is that it's about eight miles wide and the maximum flight winds have been about 162 miles per hour. And because of that, the new advisory should come in very shortly, signifying this is a Category 4 hurricane on the Sapper-Simpson scale. And Kelly, look at the outer bands now coming in. Unfortunately, you cannot really do much from here on out, folks. 
Anybody from Charlotte Harbor southward just batten down the hatches. And of course, with the outer rain bands, we are dealing with tornadoes. Some severe weather further inland. Central Polk County remains under a tornado warning. We also have tornado warnings in effect for Okeechobee County, Osceola County. That's in east central Florida. That tornado warning going until 225 Eastern Time. And these storms have generally been moving towards the north between 30 and 40 miles per hour. Now, the interstates are open. Interstate 75 is open. Interstate 10 is open as well. And, Kelly, if folks really have to get out at this very last minute, do so immediately. My parents scooping me up and bringing us into the basement. These acts, these moments, they held a gravity, a weight. There were things I'd seen in movies that I could never see in real life. Yes, Fred Krueger haunted my dreams. But tornadoes inhabited the real world. And one day, I saw something I'd never forget. Something that would be seared into my brain. It was the usual happenings in such a case in our small Ohio home. The bad weather, the news report with the stern man giving us the tornado warning. We prepared for the basement. My memories are loose. But as my parents were scurrying about, I went to the kitchen window and there, out in the cornfields that stretched into the horizon, was a dark spike tunneling into the sky with a misty cloud of debris. My child eyes finally saw a tornado in person. Sure, it was far away. But as we wait in the basement, as morbid as it sounds, I was sure this would be it. Say goodbye to Power Rangers on TV. Say goodbye to my schoolmates. Say goodbye to the house and be prepared to be sucked into the sky. Of course, that didn't happen, but the image of the tornado ripping up the cornfield never left me. My nightmares of Mr. Kruger and his knife fingers were placed. Now, you would think such an experience would leave an impression on me, and impress on me a better sense of judgment among my peers when it came to natural disasters. You would be wrong. When I moved to Florida at 12, I became acquainted with hurricanes as all Floridians do. They became a staple every year. And with the first hurricane, I did treat it with a sense of wonder and awe. They were mysterious to me. But when I turned 13, that healthy fear-driven awe turned to curiosity. And I would honestly, at the time, watch the news with hopes for getting the big one. I'm not lying to say that hurricanes excited me at that age. You see, there's something about your teenage years that have you believing that you're invincible. You feel so healthy, so in your prime. You couldn't possibly die, right? You are truly the main character of your own movie. Luckily, most of us grow out of this phase. Most of us. I was 15 when Hurricane Charlie devastated Florida in 2004. Welcome back. I'm Bill Keneally. And I'm Kelly Cass. We continue to monitor the progress of Hurricane Charlie, which is yet to make landfall along the western seaboard of Florida, but it's already causing problems further inland. Major water concerns the next few hours. We have a landfall south of Tampa. What are the implications? Let's go right to Dr. Steve Lyons. Steve? Well, Bill, the buzzsaw is heading right toward the greater, uh, uh, the greater Port uh, Char Charlotte area here in Fort Myers area. Currently, Category 4 hurricane. Now, that could produce 
very extreme damage wind-wise, but also flood-wise. The Captiva Island area is right here. Of course, Naples is over here. Now, you're going to be missed just to the north at Naples, although it's still blustery and the weather's going downhill. Wind's gusting to 55 to 60 miles per hour right now. But what's going to happen here when this gets on shore in about two hours? We're very concerned about the flood potential from, from surge, but also the wind when we get up to Category 4, in this range, we're looking at extensive to extreme damage. So if you're not in a well-reinforced uh, constructed home or a poorly built home, you need to get out of it and go next door to your neighbor's house that's built better for the next five hours as this system move, makes landfall and moves inland. We can see a lot of roofs blown off at the poorly uh, constructed homes, uh, signs down in the landfall area. Uh, we can see all kinds of trees down, power outages will be widespread in the area of landfall. Now the other big problem is the water level rise. We're going to see a significant surge here and it, locally it could be as high as 18 feet. In a category 4 hurricane in this area we can see water rises as high as 18. It's going to come up in a hurry. It's moving at 20 miles per hour to the northeast. That accentuates the height of the surge but it also makes things go from nothing to a very big water rise very quickly. So don't be outside near the ocean right now. You should be well away from the coast on high ground because the water is going to rise very quickly over the next one to three hours in the greater Fort Myers area, particularly near the Port Charlotte area. It was one of four named hurricanes that season. Not many people were prepared for what came. The hurricane upgraded from a Category 2 to a Category 4. Charlie killed 20 people. 15 of them directly. And like the morons we were, my friend Mike and I went jogging during the most intense part of the storm. The wind and the rain were unreal. That's what I remember most. Oh, and the trees shaking and blowing to the point of making a sort of music. Did I mention we were barefoot? No, I'm not kidding you. We were jogging through a Category 4 hurricane, barefoot, and I could feel the grip beneath my feet. Yes, we were those idiots you see in the background of a news report. When I was here and we woke up, it was a Category 2 storm emerging off the coast of Cuba, but the way everything was set up, it looked like, hey, it was coming to the Tampa Bay area. Then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it takes just a tiny little shift to the right, and because of the way our coast is set up, that means a landfall much further south, that was bad enough, but it also was strengthening, too, and it was strengthening rapidly. So this thing becomes a Category 4 storm. Now, as the forward speed is being picked up, you're going to bring hurricane-force winds into where you just saw Ken, in a place that they don't typically get hurricane-force winds. So while Tampa was spared, yeah, it was at the expense of Charlotte Harbor and Polk County and Orlando. And you know what? Everybody evacuated inland yep. just to be yeah. in the middle of this storm. So it was, it, we learned a lot. There were a lot of lessons learned from this particular storm. And then it eventually went up and made another landfall yeah. in South and in North Carolina Huge as storm. well. But you're talking about making landfall with 145 to 150 mile per hour winds and $15 billion in damage. And little did we know, right, that this was just one of four storms that were going to hit the state. Three of them crossing right where Ken is right now. And, you know, I'll say this too. Um, you, you know, Go ahead, Ken. Oh, I was going to say, you know, it's really kind of hard to wrap your arms around how big of a deal this is unless you're in the middle of it. And I can tell you uh, a little story. 
we were out here covering the storms day after day, and they were cleaning up and cleaning up, but still not making a whole lot of headway. And somebody from Tampa, a photographer, came in and saw a couple of trees that were down in Lakeland and said, oh, now I get it. And I thought, brother, you don't get it at all. I mean, that's nothing in comparison mm -hmm. to the scope of this whole thing. You know, and on television, it's all very contained, and you kind of get a sense of it, but you live through it. Man, it's a totally different situation. Luckily, we made it back fine. At the time, we treated it as bragging rights. Now, looking back, I feel like such a fool, to the point that I rarely bring it up, but I figured the circumstances of this specific podcast are special. It looks like my next friend is running a little late. They do this sometimes. You have friends like this too, right? While we wait, let's stop here. 